It's a great blessing to see you all here this morning and very thankful. I think brought home to me this morning because the ACF bus didn't show up and it was kind of a cooperative and determined effort by all of you to be here. Very thankful to be worshiping with all of you this morning. We're continuing our journey, second week now in 1 Corinthians, in our quest to become the perfect Christian church, which if we put into practice all the teachings of 1 Corinthians, we would become. And the good news is that if we're able to do this, we won't even have to change our name, or at least the initials of our church. But the reality is this, that we're never going to be the perfect Christian church, or even close to it, because the Christian life is a constant struggle. The goal set before each one of us is the very fullness of Jesus Christ. And there's no one here who is even close to having attained to the fullness of Jesus Christ. And the thought might occur to you then, why bother then with the struggle? Why should we strive so hard for something that we will never achieve? Our passage in Corinthians today gives us two reasons that we should struggle with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. The first reason you can see simply from the state of the Corinthian church. This is a troubled and divisive church. And this is the kind of church that you get when you continue living in the way of the world. When you do not strive to live according to all the teachings that Christ gives us. When we continue living in the desires of the flesh, our natural desires. And what you get if you do that is a really crappy church. One that does not accomplish the commission that God has given to her. The kind of church that is more a burden to others than an encouragement. The kind of church that causes rather than leaves suffering. But even in such a church, God will accomplish his purposes. And so this is also the kind of church that we see Paul say here in Corinthians, under the inspiration of God, shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? He also says to this church in another place, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The point is that if we do not struggle to be righteous, we'll just struggle. But the struggle will be against God, not alongside him. And struggling against God is never a good idea. The second reason why we should strive to live Christian life, to achieve the fullness of Christ, we will see as we go through this passage. And so let's turn to the Lord and ask that he would open our hearts to his word as we come together this morning. Father God, we thank you for this word from the Apostle Paul. We even thank you for the brokenness of the Corinthian church, her worldliness and her struggle. Because although our struggles may not be the same in this culture, the heart issues remain the same. 
And from her bad example, I pray, Lord, that we as a church would learn a good lesson. And that we would become more and more the kind of church that you are pleased by, that glorifies and honors you, the kind of church in which the transforming power of your spirit can be clearly perceived. And so attend to us this morning, Lord. Help weak and failing servants become strong in the strength that you provide. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we look at the passage that we read this morning and the problem that it describes, note that the problem that results in the divisiveness of the Corinthian church is one that is deeply rooted both in human nature and in the Corinthian church culture. That kind of ingrained sinfulness that they had gotten so accustomed to had now wormed its way into the church and had affected their witness, their life together, their community. So I ask that you would please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 10 through the end of the chapter. And if you were not here last week, we do have a handout that gives a little bit of the background of Corinthians. So if you just raise your hand, our ushers will come by and they have a handout. It's the same handout as last week. And so um, if you have it from last week, you don't need it this week. So the problem that is addressed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is the problem of divisiveness, of division in the church. And one thing that I want you to see is that this is a deeply rooted problem that has many layers to it. And part of the way you can see this is if you look ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, it says there, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And so you see that by the time you come to chapter 3, Paul is still dealing with the same problem that you have in chapter 1. In fact, if you have uh, an ESB Bible, and you can see the heading on actually the beginning of both of these sections is the same, divisions in the church. And so this entire section is dealing with the problem, but it's dealing with it in multiple layers. The outward symptom of the problem of this church is that they are divisive. But there's a deeper problem. And it's that heart issue, that transformation that God is working to accomplish, worked to accomplish in their church, and is working to accomplish also in our church. Now, in terms of division, there's different ways that Paul, or there's different ways we could avoid that problem. Uh, the easiest way avoid divisiveness in the church is simply not to care about the church. Right? We don't care about what goes on, what we teach, what we do. We just want to get together and have a good time. Then we probably won't have much problem with division because we just don't care enough. 
But this obviously is not the kind of solution that Paul was striving for as he strove to bring that Corinthian church into unity. And so the question that we want to see and answer as we look at this passage is, what is God's desire with respect to unity? Because the kind of unity that comes from not caring is not the kind of unity that God wants. So how is it that we are to be united? And perhaps even more importantly, what will God do to help us be united? Because the bottom line is simply this. If God has a purpose and desire for us, we really had better do it. Because we will either do it or he will bring us to do it if we are his children. And if he wants us to do this, then he had better provide the means for our doing it because apart from him, we ain't going to be able to obey. And so let's answer those two questions this morning. What type of unity does God desire us to have? And how is he bringing us to be able to obey? The foundation of Paul's argument is right at the beginning of our passage in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Why does Paul call for unity? There are a lot of ways that Paul could have called for unity. He could have said, as the body of Christ, you must be united. He could have said, God commands you to be united. He could have stop, said, stop being so divisive. But what he says is, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why appeal? If I just want something done, I would just give an instruction. But when Paul makes this appeal, what is he doing? He is asking for something that he hopes they will grant him. But it is in their power and it is their decision whether they will grant it or not. In other words, what this tells us is Paul is addressing a heart issue a desire. It must be their desire to be united. And when we see Paul asking for a change of heart, a transformation of heart, what we also see here is that this is an issue of sanctification. This is an issue of holiness. This is an issue of being transformed into the image of Christ. Because Paul could command an action, but he cannot command a disposition, an attitude, an affection, a passion, a desire to be like Christ. And the appeal that he makes is in the name of Christ. That's the motivation. Do you love Jesus Christ? Will you do this for him? Of course, in some sense, everything we do ought to be for Jesus Christ. 
but this particular issue is connected with what God does in bringing us to salvation. It is connected with the work of Christ in a very special way. Because part of what Christ does in going to the cross and dying for our sins and restoring fellowship with God is that he has removed that barrier of divisiveness. The first barrier being that between ourselves and God. You will all remember what happens at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And at the time that he was crucified and proclaimed, it is finished, the curtain of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies and all the people was torn from top to bottom. And so at the heart of the gospel is that the barrier between God and his people has been destroyed. The sin that divides us from one another. And so there's a way in which the divisiveness of this church destroys the witness of the Corinthians. It's a refutation of the worth of Christ and what he has done. It is a deprecation of the value and the power of the gospel. Unity is at the heart of what Christ accomplishes for us at the cross. And so our unity must also spring forth from our hearts. But as we can see in our own church, unity is also not something that is easily accomplished. We see that Paul will address the problem of divisiveness in the church here. And the sad fact of history is that this letter, inspired by God, speaking the very words of God, would not change the Corinthians' minds. And even with this plea from Paul, they will fail to repent. And so unity is the heart of who we are as a transformed people of God. But although unity is central to our being, we do not pursue unity at all costs. In fact, there's only one way in which we are to be united. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. And here I need you to be prepared to think hard because there is only one type of unity that is acceptable. Any of you have a coin in your pocket or purse? On each coin that is minted by the United States are the words e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And the idea behind that being the motto that we often recite here in the United States, united we stand. Let me ask, how's that going? 
I mean, you know, what have we seen in our country in the last decade? A decade of perhaps unprecedented divisiveness in our country. We've seen that our country is increasingly fragmented and fractured into all these little groups that each have their own interests and that these interests are diametrically opposed to others. And at the heart of this division, turmoil, and fracturing of our society is how we as a culture have untethered ourselves to the notion, even the notion of transcendental truth. The idea that there is universal truth that is true for everyone. In the last century, there was a sociologist by the name of Peter Berger, and he coined the term plausibility structures. Why is that important? The idea behind a plausibility structure was that within a culture or society, there were some things that all that society could agree upon. And for much of the history of, that, of this nation, one of the things that the majority of this nation could agree upon was the truthfulness of the scriptures and of the Christian religion. Plausibility structures were embedded within the cultural institutions and the processes of this nation. But with the advent of postmodernism, we began to lose our faith, but lose our faith not only in Christianity, but even in the idea of truth. Modernism was the idea that we could pursue truth and that truth would solve all our problems. Postmodernism was a realization that scientific discovery, advancement, had only in World War II resulted in better ways to kill each other. And so, actually my generation that said, heck with that, I'm just gonna live my truth. And so by the turn of the century, D.A. Carson noted in a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance, that the one idea or the plausibility structure that was still within this nation was the idea that we should be tolerant of one another. In other words, that we should respect one another's beliefs. But the notion of what tolerance was had begun to change. And where it had changed from was the idea that as a nation and as a culture, we should respect one another's beliefs because everyone was coming to truth. And we had to give room for people to explore truth and discover what was right. But if there's no truth to come to, then what purpose is there in that? And so the notion of tolerance had changed from the idea that we ought to respect one another's beliefs to the idea that we must affirm one another's beliefs. And that put us in the place as a nation where we had to affirm conflicting beliefs, which made our society incoherent. And you see the results of that today. It is vocal, self, uh, vocal special interest groups 
They're each demanding that their truth be affirmed. But who's to determine among them? So every group screams as loud as they can, hoping that their notion of truth will be the one that is codified into law. And we, as a result, we have a nation that is incredibly divided. But what do you and I have as Christians that this culture does not? We have the Word of God. We have revealed truth. We have a foundation to stand upon. What unites us it's not like we, that we'd like to get together and sing, that we'd like to have fellowship together. But we are united in that we have the same foundation of truth. And as we study that truth, we can come to the point where we are united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so do you see, that is the type of unity that Paul calls the Corinthians to. Not unity in whatever shape or form but unity that is knowledgeable, unity that is mature, unity that is grounded in truth. It is ultimately truth that unites. It is doctrine that unites. Well, when I say that, that may be leading some people to think, why then do we have so many different denominations? And many of you may have heard the phrase, doctrine divides. How is this a demonstration of unity? Well, let me put this to you. Denominations can be a good thing. On the one hand, yes, it divides us into different groups within Christendom. But what denominations allow is for believers to live according to what they have attained in the Word. And so I study the Word, and you study the Word, and Frank down the street studies the Word, and each one of us comes to a conviction of what we believe God has taught, and we know that there is a control on how we are to interpret the Scripture. There's, a, in other words, a right way to interpret the Scripture. God's word has meaning, and it is the meaning because God is the perfect communicator that was given to those who originally received God's word. And so, while it is true that we have come to different conclusions, we are all studying the same word with the same methodology and each approaching truth, and we can respect that in one another. And so there are some churches that believe in one form of church government. Other churches believe in another. Some believe in one form of baptism. Some believe in another. And what denominations allow Christians to do is to live in a way that is faithful to what they believe. And what we need is that first kind of tolerance. And so I think the Presbyterians are wrong. We shouldn't be baptizing infants, but rather baptism is an act of faith that identifies one with Christ Jesus. And the Presbyterian thinks that I'm wrong. Shouldn't we be bringing everybody into the community of God as families? Well, what we can do is respect 
those differences of belief as we strive to work towards the one truth that is there. And so I'll just say this, like for those of you, and I've actually received quite a few membership forms, and so Elder Gordon and I will be having interviews with you. I'll warn you about this. Elder Gordon and I have very different approaches to that membership interview. Gordon wants you to spill your guts as much as possible, and he wants to hear what you have to say. I, on the other hand, feel it's much more of a 50-50 proposition because he thinks I talk too much, which is, okay, that part of it's true, but the part of it that's important is that it's also an important decision for you, and you should have your questions about this church answered because you are making a decision to commit to a church. And you ought to know what we believe so that you can make that decision responsibly and faithfully. And so my approach is that you also need to understand who we are as we get to know who you are. And it is as we come together in truth that we find our unity together. You can see this further in the list of the names of the teachers that the Corinthians are following. You see here it says uh, in verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. We have to see that the Corinthians were not actually giving allegiance to these teachers and what they had said. Otherwise, Paul could have said to those who are of the party of Paul, hey guys, okay, my teaching is good, you're following that, that's great. Help me bring all the Corinthians into unity. But it seems like he actually thinks that there's a party of Paul to be a bad thing. But maybe that's just because we should all be disciples of Jesus. But look, he's also on that list. I follow Christ. How could you go wrong by following Christ? The reason is that the Corinthians were not really following these teachers. Paul was preaching the same gospel as Apollos, and Apollos was teaching the same way of salvation as Peter, and they were all preaching Christ. The Corinthians were not following the actual teachings of these teachers, but rather they were using a caricature of these teachers in order to promote themselves. You remember, and you can see on the handout, that part of the Corinthians culture was that there were these influential teachers called sophists. And by following a particular teacher, you tried to, in a sense, borrow from his prestige and his standing. And these schools would debate one another. And that way of life from the culture was coming into the Corinthian church, and the Corinthians were now striving to promote themselves at the expense of one another by dividing into these different schools. Paul points out something very countercultural to them, a very difficult but liberating truth. What he was pointing the Corinthians toward was freedom from the world and its system of values in exchange for the glorious truth of God. And the difficulty for the Corinthians and the difficulty for us today is that we still long for the praise, the affirmation, and the adulation of this world. But what we see Paul in this passage show is that it is a clear choice. 
pursuit of one, the world or Christ, leads to the censure of the other. Go for the approval of the world, and you lose the freedom and the joy that comes from the wisdom of God. Or you preach the foolishness of Christ crucified, and you earn the scorn of the world. As it says here, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you see how this applies to us today? We're not dividing between schools promoting one apostle over another, but we do oftentimes fall into the same trap as these foolish Corinthians. Many of you, if you've been in the church for a while, have heard the criticism that doctrine divides. What we see from the book of Corinthians here, we're already divided. If we are to be united in Christ, we must be united in truth. And the more mature we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the closer we will draw to one another. Another way that we can see that we follow the foolish pattern of the Corinthians is that we can be ashamed of the gospel. This gospel that tells everyone, you are a sinner and you need to repent. And that is a message that this world does not like to hear. And so it is oftentimes a message that we do not want to tell. The gospel is too offensive. It'll turn people away. They won't come to hear this awful truth. And so we want to show them the attractive side of the church. Bring them in with the kind of things that they want. And what the last century showed was you could build a big church through being seeker sensitive. You could build a big church using an attractional model of the church. But then you end up with a congregation that scarcely knows Christ. This is not a new problem. Over a century ago, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, An evil is in the professed camp of the Lord, so gross in its impudence that the most short-sighted can hardly fail to notice it during the past few years. It has developed at an abnormal rate, even for evil. It has worked like leaven until the whole lump ferments. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. The problem with any church that promotes something other than Christ is this, that the people who attend then are there for something other than Jesus Christ. And that that kind of church creates a consumer kind of attitude that affirms a love for the world rather than demands a transformation into the likeness of Christ and a passion for his gospel. And so what is the solution? Paul says it right here in this passage. Preach Christ crucified. Preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. We preach an unpopular message, but a message with 
power and the power to actually transform people. What is our mission as a church? We are here to cultivate a love for Christ, to show with clarity our own wretchedness and helplessness, repent of selfish, self-seeking ways, and in our lives magnify Christ. And so, I asked a question at the beginning. Why is it that we should strive when we will never attain to the goal to which we aspire while we are here on earth? I mean, why not just wait for God to do it all? Well, first, we'll be a crappy church like the Corinthians. But the second reason is even more important. Jesus Christ is worth it. He is worth all your allegiance, all your sacrifice, all your devotion, all your love. Consider what Jesus has saved you from. In each one of your lives, there are things that you have done, things you have thought, things you have said that you are desperately ashamed of, hope that no one will ever see. And the reality is, God has already seen it all. And one day, every person appears before the judgment throne of God to be judged for all those actions, thoughts, and deeds. In my life, there are so many sinful things in my past that I try not to recall and I don't want to think of. For those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, there is this reality. Jesus Christ was dragged before the authorities of this world. He was spat upon, had a crown of thorns pressed into his brow, stripped of his clothing. He bore the penalty of all my sins and all the shame and the punishment that should be upon my head. He stood there and received. I love the words from Philip Bliss. He wrote the great hymn, Man of Sorrows, What a Name. In the second verse, he says this, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What is beautiful about this church? What is it that we want to testify and hold forth? The ACF bus didn't come this morning. Why should people make that effort to come anyway? And the answer for this church had better be, we see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, the Savior who gave his life in order to save me. And that must be the message that we proclaim. And he is worthy of our proclamation. Can we live our lives testifying to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ? 
can we be, live in a gratitude that all those terrible sins that you and I have committed, that he bore the shame and the suffering for? Is that attractive? Can that be the reason that we come to church? Can that be why people make sacrifices and love and serve the church? Because of the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I pray that you would forgive us for whenever we thought we could do one better in presenting your gospel to the world. When our appeal to the world is not come, there is a Savior who loves you. But we've striven to bring people in for other reasons, which only become a way of promoting ourselves, our egos, our ways, just as the Corinthians did. But help us instead, Lord, to have a passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ and desire as a church to see him exalted and render our service and our devotion to him. Forgive us, strengthen us, and help us, Lord, that you would be magnified among us. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We've experienced Christ in so many ways, and one of the great blessings we have is that as a church, we magnify Christ by sharing and testifying to his work in each one of our lives. This morning, we're blessed as Diana Am is willing to come and share God's work in her life. And so I ask you to please welcome Diana. Good morning, PCC. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Diana. Um, I came to Pittsburgh for undergrad, and I thought as soon as I graduated, I would get out of here. <laughs> um, but now I've been here for seven years. Um, so, and I've been really blessed by PCC as a church, which is a big reason why I'm still here. So growing up, in a family that regularly attended church, I began to learn about Jesus before I even learned how to spell Jesus. Um, I began reciting phrases like, God is good all the time, but I didn't understand how good God actually was. I heard the gospel, but I didn't understand why my sins deserved the death that he suffered. I began to learn more about God in middle school and high school but I saw after a relationship with him out of security and out of habit. I became very involved in church youth group and was baptized, but based on my actions, I was basically living as if I didn't know God at all. I would only dedicate my Friday nights and Sunday mornings to him. Otherwise, I acted the same as my non-Christian friends. I wanted his unconditional love, but I didn't love him. I wanted all the comforts that came from God, but I didn't want him. Um, even though I professed with my mouth that Jesus was Lord and Savior over my life, 
I was the one who was ultimately in control. The moment I gained an ounce of independence at college, I took the opportunity to do everything that I wanted for myself. And for myself, what I craved the most was love and validation from people, my parents, my friends, and even random strangers. I thought that if I brought home stellar grades at the end of each semester, my parents would love me more. Um, and I believed if I dressed a certain way or became a fun personality at parties, I could gain acceptance from peers around me. I wouldn't admit it, but I was not living in line with the holiness that God required of me. Eventually, I got to a point where I crossed physical boundaries that I desperately hoped would make a man love me more. And I locked that sin away and began keeping larger secrets from my closest friends. Um, and as my relationship with my friends and those around me were affected by the spreading effects of my sin, I watched indifferently through my twisted view of God's love. If God's love was unconditional, I thought, he could forgive me. With the minimization of my sins, I was ignorant to what God commanded of me. I was still blinded to why Jesus had to die for me personally. I didn't see my sins as too terrible, as they were mostly hurting myself anyways. Um, however, the life I was living was just not it. Uh, when I returned to college for my sophomore year, I felt emptier as I saw the superficiality of many of the relationships that I made. One day, I would be feeling amazing because I received the validation that I wanted, and then later that night, I would break down crying because everything felt so pointless. And this was because putting my self-worth and happiness in people is inconsistent. After repeating this cycle for a while, I realized that I was missing something. What was the purpose of this life? When I lived by my own standards, it only backfired on me. I turned into someone that my close friends barely recognized, and I had minimized God and all his glory so easily. I knew that as a self-professing Christian, it was time to re-examine my relationship with God. In sophomore year of college, I began to attend church again, at first because it felt more comfortable to slip back into a routine that I had grown up with. However, as I learned more about logical reasoning for God's existence, the validity of the Bible and Jesus' resurrection, um, I started to see my belief in God not as a blind faith or the faith of my family, but as something I wanted to pursue. I desired to truly know this God of the universe. And as the gospel was taught to me again, I reached the same roadblock. Why did Jesus have to die for me personally? At a retreat during the end of sophomore year, he helped me see that as his creation, sins against myself or others were wrongdoings against him as well. And he helped me see the magnitude of his holiness, that any sort of sin, no matter how small, against a holy, holy God was a rejection that deserves separation from him. And that night, I knew I didn't want to continue to willingly live a life that was against God. I wanted to pursue a genuine relationship with him. Um, and since I've been saved, God has been faithful and patient. In 2020, I saw the full extent of my mom's mental health struggles, 
and I felt so helpless as I tried to argue her out of her delusional thoughts. Um, and through my mom, he's teaching me the importance of prayer, how he is ultimately the one in control and not me. And in 2021, God blessed me through my marriage to Ben, who is a reminder every day of God's goodness to me. And through the way I treat Ben, I see my own selfishness. And through Ben's love, I see God's love. Um, my heart still fails to fully surrender to God. These past few years, I've been struggling with my mental health and putting my self-worth in people still, and I'm not fully satisfied by God's love. There are days where I hate so much the way that God has made me, and I want so much to be like other people. Um, there are times where the stress and sadness of life is just so overwhelming that I want to give up and disappear. And yet, God does not let go. He has given me my husband, my friends, and my church family who are his arms around me. And despite my pride, he has given me my only hope in life and death, the truth that I belong to my Savior, Jesus Christ. As Psalm 16 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And God is good all the time. Thank you. Let's take a moment to pray together for Diana. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful sister that you've called into our community. And we pray for both her and ourselves, Lord. Not that we could be a community that she would draw her self-worth from, but that we could be a community that would reflect to her your infinite love, your infinite acceptance of her, and that you have made her your beautiful daughter, and that all that she needs is found in you. Help us grow together to maturity. We thank you for Diana. We thank you for Ben. We ask that you would bless them and their marriage as they grow together with us into your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name.